Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. We rely on the generosity of our listeners to sustain this ministry and the message of the coming kingdom of heaven. Please consider making a donation to Beth Emanuel by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. When I was in college, I worked at the student newspaper. There was a sign hanging in the newspaper office that said, this would be a pretty good school if it wasn't for all the faculty and students. I've adapted that saying into various contexts in my life. Essentially, it means that life would be pretty good if it wasn't for the problem of having to deal with other people. This is a perspective which bears on our discussions about walking with God, practicing the presence of God, and trusting God with complete bitachon. It just seems it would be a lot easier to be mindful of God keeping our communion with him and continually practicing the presence of God if we didn't have to deal with other people. Likewise, trusting in God and that he will work everything for the good sounds good until you factor in other people. What about when other people choose to do evil? How does that work? The truth is the opposite. It's through other people that we encounter God. It's impossible to say that we practice the presence of God if we also shun the company of those made in God's image. We cannot claim to walk with God if we are unable to walk with our our fellow human beings. And if we trust that God is in control, only up to the limit of the actions of other people, we are not really able to trust him at all. So this creates something of a paradox. The solution to the paradox is to learn to see our interactions with other people as extensions of God's divine purposes for the good, rather than frustrations of that divine purpose. We can refer to this principle as the principle of don't shoot the messenger. But before we get into that, Let's review a little bit. Over the last few weeks, I introduced you to the principle of trusting and relying on God as a matter of bitachon. We looked at Joseph's example, and we learned several principles of bitachon, of trusting Hashem. Let's quickly review them before looking at what we can learn about bitachon in this week's Torah portion. Trust, bitachon, believes that everything Good and bad. Okay. Number one. Bitachon believes that everything, good and bad, comes from Hashem. Number two. Bitachon believes that God is good. So, even when bad things happen, God is still good and will bring good out of the bad. Number three. Bitachon does not rely on man or the natural order for success at all. We place trust in God alone and not in man. And since everything comes from Hashem, a person must remember that his success or his failure ultimately are with God and depend completely upon God, even if they come through the agency of a human being, such as a doctor or other type of help. Number four, Bitachon does not rely on miracles. A person should not wait around for God to miraculously intervene, but should do what he can along the way to meet his own needs and those of others, so long as he remembers that his success comes 
only from God. We should not test the Lord by relying on miraculous interventions. God is able to save, but even if he does not, he is still God and still good and still trustworthy. And number five, Bitachon believes that we are not seeing the whole picture here. Reward, punishment, and the ultimate good may not be revealed in this world. The final accounting for reward and punishment are reserved for the final judgment, and we aren't there yet. Therefore, we might not always see the good in this world or in our lifetimes, because the ultimate good is reserved for Ganaden, for the Messianic era, for the world to come. In the story this week, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers and says to them, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Genesis 45 verse 5. How was Joseph able to offer his brothers such a gracious and total pardon? He did so on the basis of his confidence in God's goodness. He saw that though the brothers had meant his sale into slavery for evil, God meant it for good. Everything had worked according to God's plan and wisdom. If the brothers had not sold Joseph to the Egyptians, he would never have been there to interpret Pharaoh's dream, store up seven years of grain, and save Jacob's family in the process. Joseph adamantly insisted that it was not the brothers who had sent him into Egypt. Instead, it was God. He repeats this three times in Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8. God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. And it was not you who sent me here, but God. Since he was able to see the greater good of the hand of God behind the malice of his brothers, Joseph was able to forgive them for their sins against him. Can we do the same? When we are wronged or slighted, rather than seeking some sort of retaliation, we should remember the Joseph story. Remember that God ultimately works all things for the good. Yeshua commands us to forgive one another. He warns us that if we do not forgive others when they wrong us, God will not forgive our sins. Joseph's capacity to forgive arose from his high view of the sovereignty of God. He explained to his brothers that, though you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. Genesis 50 verse 20. Because Joseph had complete confidence in the ultimate sovereign purposes of God and God's goodness, he felt no need to extract any retribution upon his brothers. He could instead leave matters in God's hand, trusting that God accomplished his purposes despite his own personal pain. It was not you who sent me here, but God, he explained to his brothers. Genesis 45, verse 8. Joseph urged his brothers not to beat themselves up with guilt and remorse. He insisted that the entire ordeal 
had been part of God's providential plan to save lives in the famine. Our master teaches us to adopt Joseph's attitude of complete trust in God's care. He says that no harm can befall anyone unless God allows it to transpire. Though wicked men might mistreat us, abuse us, and even kill us, Yeshua says, we should trust in our Father in heaven, who does not let even a tiny bird perish apart from his will. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. But of course, this raises some questions. Does the story of Joseph and his brothers imply that man does not have free will? Were Joseph's brothers just pawns in God's hands? They thought they were committing a sin, but actually they were just marionettes on strings. Is the same true for everyone who commits a crime against us? Are they innocent of wrongdoing because God arranged it? And does that mean that when I sin, I too am actually acting simply as an agent of God's will, like Joseph's brothers? Bitachon teaches that nothing happens by chance. Even the bad things which befall us are within God's sovereign care. If so, a person might blame God for his sins. He might say, Just as Joseph's brothers accomplished the will of God when they sinned, so too my sins have been ordained by heaven. On the contrary, Judaism teaches that God allows men to choose their own paths, to do good or to do evil. Apostolic teaching is emphatic on this point. God does not force a man to sin, nor does he even tempt a man to do so. James, the brother of the master, says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James 1, 13-15 So, even if God uses the sinner's evil deed to accomplish his will, that does not exonerate the sinner from guilt for the evil he inflicts. Joseph attributed his suffering to God's will. He told his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That's true. But Joseph's brothers were not trying to preserve lives when they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites. They meant evil against Joseph. Though God used their iniquity to accomplish his purposes, they still had to repent for their sin against their brother. Notice this, Joseph actually did not offer his conciliatory words to them, nor did he reveal his identity to them until they had given him evidence of genuine repentance. In fact, that is the whole point of the story of Joseph's disguise and his tests. 
He needed to know that they had repented before he could forgive and reconcile. After he knew that they had repented and regretted their misdeeds, he forgave them wholeheartedly because he could see how their wrongdoing had served God's purposes. Judaism's doctrine of God's theodicy says that nothing happens outside of God's will. Yet, at the same time, Judaism teaches that men have free will to choose wrong or right, and that God will punish them for their misdeeds. How does that work with Bittachon? Yeshua says that we should not fear what men can do to us because not a sparrow falls to the ground and even the hairs on our head are numbered. The Talmud addresses the apparent paradox in the following statement. A punishment is brought about through the hand of a guilty person. Shabbat 32a. This means that when God needs to inflict some punishment or impose some correction or bring some affliction by human agency, he can do so by means of sinful men. According to the Talmud's explanation, he finds someone already guilty who has already willed to commit the sin, and he uses them and their choices in his grand design but he does not interfere with their free choice. Just because he uses their evil for good does not exonerate the sinful men from the guilt of the sin they commit. The Talmud uses the following example of a parapet around a person's roof to illustrate the idea. In Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, it says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, so that you will not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. The Talmud uses the verse to illustrate the idea of guilt and complicity. Suppose a man does not build a parapet, and someone falls from his roof and suffers injury or loss of life, God forbid. Since even a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from God, the Lord must have willed it and allowed the man to fall. If so, why is the man without a parapet held responsible? The Talmud says he is responsible for the man's life and bears the guilt, even though the man who fell was destined to fall. God brought the punishment of falling to his death upon the man who fell, but he chose to do so through the hand of the guilty, the man who was guilty of not building a parapet. This kind of paradoxical thought does not sit well with our linear and rational perspective, but this is one of the fundamental principles of being able to trust God, that God can use the evil of evil men. A punishment is brought about through the hand of a guilty person. Free will does not mean that the world is out of control. The Talmud's solution that God uses a person already guilty to carry out an evil decree against another so that he can then return to punish the evildoer is admittedly a little bit weak. Let's think about it from a different perspective. We run into theodicy problems and paradox only when we try to synthesize the whole universe and all its moving parts into a consistent scheme by viewing God's interactions with everyone from a shifting perspective of independent entities. 
We do this through the power of empathy, whereby we are able to imagine the world not just from our own single perspective, but also from that of other beings. And that's how it should be. That's healthy. Ordinarily, that's what we want to be doing. But it creates problems if we insist on reconciling all perspectives to be consistent with our own. From Joseph's perspective, it's possible to see that God used the evil of his brothers for good and to say that God orchestrated these things. But is this also true from the brothers' perspective? From their perspective, the brothers can concede that God did use the evil they did for good, but they cannot ascribe their actions to God. Like Joseph says, you meant it for evil. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That is to say, they acted with free will. How can an action be of free will and under the orchestration of divine providence simultaneously? Perhaps when considering theodicy and free will, a person should not try to synthesize these different perspectives. Instead, there's another Talmudic principle that says, each and every person is obligated to say, the world was created for me, Sanhedrin 37a. This is not saying that a person should be self-centered. I take this to mean that every person should realize that he is the observer and the experiencer. If you were not observing, the universe you observe would not exist. No one sees and experiences the world precisely the way you do. The world was created for me perspective means that each person from their perspective is the central character in the story, the one experiencing, feeling, seeing, and making choices. All the others are actors in God's drama. In other words, no one has free will except for the individual. Free will is real and true only for the individual only for you. These type of deep thoughts are probably too philosophical and esoteric to be of much use. So let's try to approach the question from one more angle. We're trying to understand how bad actors who perpetrate evil by their own free will are in some sense agents of God's will. In Hasidic Judaism, the idea is sometimes referred to as don't shoot the messenger. And it is illustrated in the story of Shimei the Benjamite. Here's the story. When King David's son Absalom raised up a rebellion against the king, he put together an army and marched on Jerusalem. King David, his household, and his officials had to flee the city. And this broke David's heart. And he left the city weeping and mourning. His own son had turned against him, and now he had to abandon the holy city and flee to the wilderness as he crossed over the Mount of Olives. A relative of King Saul's named Shimei the Benjamite walked on a hillside path above the road upon which the king and his entourage traveled. The Bible says, 
He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. Thus Shammai said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, man of Belial, you worthless man. David's men wanted to kill Shammai for the insult. They said, Why should we let this dead dog's head remain on his shoulders? But David forbade them because he knew that all that was coming upon him was actually a punishment for the sin he had committed against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. How did David know this? Well, the prophet Nathan had already told him to expect this sort of thing. When Nathan convicted David of the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, he uttered a prophecy. He said, The sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. So David had the advantage to see the entire situation from the divine perspective, even if only just a glimpse. That's why he won't let his men strike Shammai down. David says, If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. 2 Samuel 16, 10-11 David understood that God was using Shammai against him to punish him for his sins. So rather than get angry at Shammai, David looked to the Lord with a heart of bitachon. He realized that this guy was just the messenger. So he tells his men, so to speak, don't shoot the messenger. He says, perhaps God has told him to curse David. David's right, of course. Shammai is acting as an agent of a divine punishment against David. He's actually bringing a tikkun, a correction, to David's life. But that did not exonerate Shammai from the crime he was committing. Shammai did not go down to the grave in peace. Years later, when King Solomon took the throne after after the death of David, Solomon put Shammai to death for his insults against the king. Don't shoot the messenger refers to the idea that when someone brings you bad news that makes you unhappy, you shouldn't punish them for it. That person is just bringing you the message. The Hasidic principle of don't shoot the messenger says that when adversity befalls us, when any type of trouble or distress afflicts us, or when we suffer in any way, or when some wicked person mistreats us, or some person sins against us, we should not be angry at the circumstance or the person, but rather look to God. Because the thing that afflicts us, or the person who harms us, on one level is just the messenger. The same principle applies on a less egregious level. When someone irritates us, when your family members push your buttons, when your kids test your patience and so forth, we should not retaliate in anger and frustration and thereby shoot the messenger, but rather we should look to God and see if there might be some lesson learned, some correction our souls need, some message we need to hear. That's the Hasidic perspective. God is trying to communicate something to us. 
teach us something, correct something, heal some spiritual blemish, punish us for some sin, give us merit for some future reward, or bring about some other unknown and inexplicable future or hidden good. And these circumstances and persons that seem to vex us are merely the messengers. Entering into that state of mind gives a person the ability to have complete trust in Hashem. That confidence allows us to remain positive, resist anger and bitterness, and forgive others when they sin against us, as Joseph did. Joseph forgave his brothers and did not feel any need to avenge himself in any way against them because he recognized that though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Therefore, it allows us to see the good in others who are made in the image of Hashem and to enter into the divine love that connects all human beings together in God. That is the theology of Bitachon, and that is why we can rely on God and trust him completely because whatever is meant for evil and whatever appears to us as evil, in fact, even though it is evil, is ultimately for the good according to the purposes of divine love. We don't expect to see that in this world, but we know it to be true. God means all things for good because he is good, and he will bring about good for all those who love him. Even people are for the good, even the bad ones. We know that God causes all people to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul.